0: Well, let me read the passage, and that was exactly what was alluded to in First Peter chapter 2, really the most famous portion of this book in some respects because it focuses on Christ, First Peter 2, verse 21 through 25. Let me just read that and pray, and then we'll begin. Peter writes, "'For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps.'" For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before your people and your word and to declare the truths that are even so great, greater than we can even grasp. Help us in this hour to contemplate the model of Christ. Help us to see in him all that we need, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest need in one man, the God man, your son. We ask that you might bless us and give us understanding and give me grace as I speak. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I said, we come this morning to a text once again. This is part two that is, without a doubt, I think, the most core text in this entire portion of Scripture, one of the most core truths that we are ever going to investigate or ever could be imagined. Because in this text, we find something that's very important for our souls, and that is strength. We find strength here. And strength is exactly what we need. It's what we must have. Because as sheep, we continually, as the text says, uh, strain. We are worn out. We are worn out from our wanderings. We are exhausted because of our woundedness. And we are weak because of our sinfulness. And so we come to this text this morning in great need of this text for the second time because what we find in this passage of Scripture, something that is very real, very substantial, very lasting and profound in its strength. But you're not going to find that word strength in this portion of Scripture. In fact, you might imagine that this is not the kind of strength that one would call strength at all. You won't find in this passage, as you just heard, permission to take matters into your own hands. You're not going to find in this portion of Scripture encouragement to assert yourself against your enemies, to be the master and commander of your own soul. You won't find justification for your anger in this text. You're not going to find acceptance of your ranting or your revenge, not here. No, you won't find any of those things. But what you will find is strength redefined strength redefined, a strength that is rooted in the example of a sinless slave of God, an example that shows strength to be something that really defies explanation. This strength is ultimately superhuman. This strength ultimately is beyond what the world expects or beyond what it accepts. Because here in this passage, we find a strength that is described and illustrated, not just so much in what we do but sometimes in terms of not only what we don't do even though it doesn't speak of strength here in all truth these terms that you're going to see with me this morning describe the exact opposite of what most people think true strength is because here in 1 Peter chapter 2 we have the once explosive apostle Peter to illustrate what is in essence the real might and glory of suffering in silence How to suffer in silence. Now, even as I say that, I know that strikes you probably in an odd way. It's a very strange thing, isn't it? It's a strange thing to live our lives in a world full of fury, full of anger, full of dog-eat-dog kind of philosophies of life, where a man or woman demand their own way. They're told that they are to come to their senses and protest against the world, and then they're told once they come to God that they have to unlearn everything they've once been taught and understood from the world. In fact, they're taught that the world's reaction and what you've been taught is the exact opposite of what God would demand. As Americans, of course, we have the right to protest. We're Protestants, for, for crying out loud. That's who we are. But it's within that democracy framework that we can do that, not so in the day of 1 Peter. This is a shocking thing. It's a shocking thing to be surrounded I think day in, day out with men and women who yell at each other, who cry out at the top of their lungs that this world has wronged them, that they want some blood, they refuse to take it anymore. And then to come to the church of God and open up the scripture as in 1 Peter 2 and understand the thoughts of God are telling them that true living, true life, true strength, true success is found in quiet submission, even at the hands of ignoble, inferior, and unjust people. But that's exactly what our text tells us. That's exactly where we are today. Written by the leader of the apostles himself, Peter, a letter that's inspired by God to us, a letter that is perfect in its decrees, unassailable in its truth, and preserved for us for 2,000 years, unchanging and unyielding. This is what we have before us. And it's here that we have in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25, what I have titled, The Silent Strength of a Sinless Slave. The Silent Strength of a Sinless Slave, illustrated for us, for our instruction, for our example that we might, as verse 21 says, follow in his steps that we might follow in the steps of Christ in our Christian life. The sinless slave is, of course, Jesus Christ. The silent strength is the prototype that's been given to us concerning his response to evil and injustice to emulate, for us to emulate what it is that he has done. Because we too, at the end of verse 16, you see, are slaves of God. We are slaves of God, and we too, look at the very beginning of verse 21, have been called for this purpose, the silent suffering, to suffer as he did, as the example that he gave. Now, before we dive into where we left off last time, I just want to look at the, what we, I call the three pictures of Christ's suffering, the three pictures or examples, if you will, of Christ's strength as displayed in how he was a slave to God, given to us so that we might endure as slaves of God too. And I want to take you to a place that kind of sets this all up for us in a way that I think is going to be very helpful. I want to take you to a place that sets this whole concept up for us in the life of Christ, a place that paints the picture, I think, like no other place in Scripture. I want to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. So go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark, which is essentially, if you know, the record of the Apostle Peter's sermons in Christ's life as written by Peter's disciple, who is Mark. So let's go there first. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. And just look with me in the beginning here at verse 32. Mark 14, 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. Jesus' soul was deeply distressed and troubled. Matthew tells us that he was sorrowful, that he was troubled, that this was the moment of truth for our Lord in his life, that the crossroads of his life, the culmination of his life, all of his ministry, all that he had taught, all that he stood for, all of his teaching was now essentially boiled down to this one momentary crisis. Philippians 2, 7, and 8 says that he came to earth as God, but chose the form of a slave, a form of a slave so that he might humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why? Because the most important thing in our Lord's entire life was to please the Father. To please the Father. His service as a slave, the very reason that he came to earth in the form of a man was to live out before us the life of a slave before his master, to show us what it is to do his master's will. Jesus said in John 8, I always do what is pleasing to him he said of the father. He says in John five thirty, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now look at me with what is pleasing to the father, what that meant to him. Stay in Mark, verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke adds in his gospel account, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground, Luke twenty two forty four. 44. Why? Why? look at verse, again, 36. Remove this cup from me, this cup. What cup? What is he speaking of here? He saw the suffering before him at the cross and the shame and the abuse and everything that was going to be hurled against him. He saw them all colliding together at one time before him. He saw the moment that was coming upon him where he would choose to submit to the Father's will and willingly be torn from his side, and he yet utters these words in verse 36, yet not my will but your will be done. There was, I think, in our Lord Jesus Christ, an active, deliberate, intentional, soulful, purposeful desire to lose his life so that the will of the Father would be accomplished. And this submission, this submission was his strength. This submission was his strength because his greatest desire beyond his own comfort, beyond his own pain, beyond his own will, was to entrust himself to him who judges righteously, the Father. This was, as you know, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the joy set before him. This was because the joy set before him, the joy of heaven, the joy of returning to the Father from which he came, the joy of being received back into the arms of his loving Father, once he had proven his love for the world, was his goal. That's the picture of strength. That's real strength. That's a strength that we need to learn, and that's a strength that we need to model. What we have here in this section back in 1 Peter chapter 2 we have here three other pictures of this strength of Christ. And I want to go over what we did last time just a little bit. We covered it in depth. If you want to uh, download that or listen to that off gracechurch.org, you can do that. But I just want to do a little review to kind of build the momentum back to where we were last time and help you kind of put your arms around this great portion of Scripture just to build the, the content and the momentum here, first, let's just remember the first picture of Christ's strength, if you're taking notes, was number one, the strength of his sufferings, the strength of his sufferings. To, to really understand something about Christ, the first thing we notice in verse 21 is the strength of his sufferings. And we see this when we read, "'For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps.'" This is the strength of his suffering. Our first example of true strength comes from following the path of Christ, following his example. And you see that even with the Greek word here, gramon," which is under the writing. We spoke about this last time. It's like a child uh, tracing his schoolwork, tracing his schoolwork, learning how to write, taking the letters and trying to make sure that his writing is exactly like his master's writing that that's to be our response during hardship as well. And hardship and trial come upon us. We're supposed to try to emulate, try to trace exactly the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ as he emulated his strength in his sufferings. This is a purpose in life. The purpose, verse 21 says, that God has called us into and out of a life of, of rebellion and into a life of submission. Look at verse 19 and 20, which directs as to the statement that Peter is illustrating. He says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God this finds favor with God. Favor with God, the, the joy of knowing that we are pleasing God, the joy of knowing that our only motivation, the greatest motivation that can illustrate this kind of willful suffering is to please the Father. And Peter says it was Christ's motivation his entire life. This is why Peter celebrates in the book of Acts something that's so incredibly wonderful is that we are privileged by God as it says in Acts, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name, Acts 5.41. To, to understand that it's a joy, it is a, a, a fact that we are worthy to suffer in that way should cover all things. It should be the great objective of our life. These slaves of God, these earthly slaves of men, as it says in verse 18, were to find their strength, original readers, in the example of Christ's sufferings. I know this is so sometimes counterintuitive to the way that most of us think, even even in the church, because so much we want to give over to our impulses, so much we want to right what is wrong. But you cannot say that you follow Christ, truly trust Christ, truly, truly love Christ, believe on Christ, desire Christ, want more of Christ, and not suffer the way Christ did. He is our example. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is the first picture of Christ's strength. The second picture of Christ's strength we see here is the strength of Christ's silences, the strength of Christ's silences. And we see that in verse 22 and 23. Let me read that for you. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. If you remember, we spoke of the fact that, according to historians, the overwhelming amount of suffering the average first century slave endured, slaves which, for the most part, were comprised of those of uh, Peter's readers, Was verbal. Verbal abuse was probably the overwhelming kind of suffering that they endured. They were constantly humiliated, constantly demeaned. And we know that because Peter continues to encourage them throughout this letter. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, "...for such is the will of God that by doing right you might silence the ignorance of foolish men." silence them by your behavior. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. He refers to it again in verse 16 of chapter 3, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Chapter 4, verse 14, and if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And like all men, all men who has ever lived, these Christian slaves being hurled with abuse when being abused desire to respond to their hardships verbally, desire to respond to their hardships by meeting the challenge by showing that they're not doormats, by showing and responding to their hardships verbally and stretching the truth sometimes, and even lying and speaking abusively and threatening those who threaten you. They wanted to be vindicated. Of course, they wanted to prove their case. They wanted to assert themselves. But Peter says, look to Christ. Look to the illustration of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Look to the ultimate slave, and see his example first, for his strength manifests ironically in silence. And we've looked at that. We looked last time at the seven silences of Christ during his trial, a trial that Peter himself witnessed from afar and watched as he was being overwhelmed with abuse and mistrial. Peter witnessed it from the courtyard where he too was being tried, though he didn't know it, a trial where he was unlike his master, in every way, lying, cursing, denying him, denying those, telling those who did not know Christ that he too did not know Christ. He didn't believe, all the while Jesus standing in perfect, pristine silence, manifesting his strength and enduring all of the shame that was hurled against him. But let me also note that Christ's silence are not to be understood merely as absence of speaking. But also, and listen to this, and mainly in this text, as the absence of sinful speech. Listen to that. The absence of sinful speech, for Christ did respond at times, but he did not sin when he responded. You know, the natural impulse of all of us, I think, of all people who depend on themselves and believe that God has no control as we did before we were believers is to threaten is to revile is to to speak back to push back to not again be treated like dirt but Jesus entrusted himself as it says in verse 23 he had handed over he had delivered and committed all judgments all vindication all all needs to the father so his silence Christ's silence was proof of his sinlessness of his sinlessness We're sinful, even as a believer. We are born in sin, but not Jesus, not our Lord. Consider these things with me real quickly. He was sinless as a baby. He was sinless as a baby. He never had a temper tantrum. He never caused an anxious thought. He was sinless as a child in that home in Nazareth, playing around in a carpenter's shop, going to school, rubbing shoulders with other kids, brothers and sisters, neighbors and friends. He was without sin as a young man. He was without sin and imagination in his desires and his aspirations and his words and his deed. He was sinless when Satan found him fasting in the wilderness. He was sinless when Satan left him exhausted and at the end of his physical endurance. He was sinless in his relationships with men and women and children, and sinless under the all seeing eye of God his Father. He was immaculate. He was holy, absolutely pleasing to God. That's what it means when it says he did not sin. Astonishing. When he was reviled, when his enemies tried to provoke him, his silence manifested, but not speaking by not speaking the same way to them as they spoke to him. He never threatened. The one who made them, the one who actually created those that were reviling against him, decided in his perfect holiness not to assert himself against them. During his trial before Caiaphas, if you remember, one of the temple guards struck the Lord Jesus Christ in the face, in the face And Jesus' silence manifested by what he didn't say. This is what he said. If I have spoken evil, testify of the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why did you strike me? John 18, 23. To strike the face of the one that created the universe. And yet he did not disintegrate him in a moment. He did not evaporate that guard and make everyone else shock. Listen to this. He had 12 legions of angels at his command. That's what the scripture tells us. So what's a legion? 6,000 men were in a Roman legion. One angel, one angel in one night could slay all of the soldiers of the Sanhedrin. He had more than 72,000 fierce angels at his command, and yet he did not threaten. That's staggering that's incomprehensible. That has to be God because he had scripture to fulfill and he had a father to please. He had scripture to fulfill and he had a father to please. He was on a mission and nothing was going to deter him from that mission, not the things he said and not the things that he wouldn't say, which brings us to this last picture of Christ's strength that I want to cover today. Not only did Christ's strength manifest in his sufferings, and his silence but lastly Christ's strength is seen in his substitution in his substitution not only in his silence but also in his substitution and we see that in verses 24 and 25 and he bore he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed for you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What we have here before us in those two verses is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement, the truth of scripture that Christ died as our substitute for all who believe. But Peter wraps this idea in the Old Testament fulfillment of Isaiah 53 because Peter here presents to his slave readership this sinless slave named Christ. Go to Isaiah 53, and let me show you something that helps our understanding, I think, of this. Isaiah 53, the famous passage um, that is in, of course, the Old Testament, pointing to the suffering servant, pointing to the Messiah. In Isaiah 53 you're going to see in verse 10, we read of Christ as a guilt offering, as a guilt offering. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. I want you to think there are many different types of offerings in the Old Testament, four types of blood offerings in the Old Testament, and each one of them had their own distinctive little characteristics and features. But the guilt offering. The guilt offering was one offering whose apparent purpose was to offer satisfaction, offer satisfaction for a wrong committed. So if you had wronged someone, this was the guilt offering. So the question is to whom was the wrong committed who needed satisfaction in the case of Christ? This is vital. This is very important to wrap our heads around to understand the real importance of atonement. We have to view it in the light of the Trinity of God, Father, Spirit, Son. And the reason this is vital is because it is in this triune God, the relationship of the Father's love that it is most clearly seen. So listen to this. Neither the Father nor the Spirit were spectators in the great drama of redemption. The Holy Spirit in Hebrews 9.14 is spoken of as the eternal Spirit through whom Christ offered himself without blemish, blemish to God. But it's also the father's role, as it says here in Isaiah 53, and it speaks in love. It speaks of love. In fact, John Murray, theologian, says this, this love of Christ is not in its biblical perspective unless we perceive that it is love constrained by and exercised in the fulfillment of the Father's will, and the Father's will as the purpose flowing from His invincible love. We all know you don't have to turn there, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. We know in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, the words of John as he, again, paints this same picture over and over for us to make sure that we don't miss the significance of it. Chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Back to Isaiah 53. If you are there, you'll see, just looking with me briefly, in verse 4, The irony, this is this love of the Father, love for the Son. The Son's love for the Father his desire to please the Father, all here in the sacrifice. And yet the great irony of this love is this. He was, verse 4, smitten of God. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It says in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, again, it says that our sins have fallen on him. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The wrath of God needed to be satisfied. The wrath of God needed to be satisfied, not because the Son loved us against the harsh judgment of the Father, but because the Father's love and wrath we're satisfied completely in the Godhead out of love. We understand substitution in childlike ways. I think so many simple ways. But do we really grasp what it is? I never forget when my kids were young. <laughs> Two of them, well, Tommy, Tommy and Josiah both did this at different times. Um, something would happen. Some fist or slap or something would happen, and, and uh, I was going to have to discipline the one that you know threw the slap or destroyed the thing, whatever it was, and twice that I remember, maybe it was more, Lori. I'm not sure, but um, Tommy, I know for sure, would sit there and say, "Dad, I'll take the spanking for Josiah," and I think Josiah did it once for him too. "I'll take it." They kind of it was kind of like a, uh, you know, "You did it for me, I'll do it for you. I'll take the spanking, you'll take the spanking," and what a picture. We're thinking substitution. So I would take little Tommy or little Josiah into our bedroom, close the door. They had to usually get up like this against the bed. And I had my little helper, my little <laughs> helper. We don't have that anymore. <laughs> I'm scared to do it now. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Tommy or Joe would be shaking because they're going to take the punishment for their brother. And then, of course, I'd say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show you grace. But thank you for being willing to suffer for your brother. That's how we understand substitution. That's how we kind of do it, but, but it's so much more full. Look back at the 1 Peter 2. Look back in verse 24. We need healing. We need healing. By your, his wounds, you were healed. We need healing. That's why he substitutes for us. Verse 25, it says, We were strained like sheep. We need a substitute because we couldn't help ourselves from straying away from him. We need, as it says in the end of that verse, a shepherd to help us, a guardian to guide us. We need a sinless slave to help us. And look at the verse, middle of verse 24. So that, this is imperative, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did he bear our sins? in His body on the cross? Why does it have the picture of Christ in His body with our sins, taking them to the cross as a sacrifice, being sacrificed before the Father on our behalf? Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is very, very imperative. The death and life of what is painted here is painted all through First Peter. You're going to see this very shortly after these verses. Next time I'm up to preach in First Peter, you're going to see we, we die and live in our marriages. You're going to see that in chapter three. For husbands, you're going to have to die and live. You're going to see, you're going to say for wives, you have to die to sin and live to righteousness. For trials that we endure, we're going to have to die to sin and live to righteousness. For the church itself, we have to die to our own sin and live to righteousness so that we might be slaves of God like him, entrusting ourselves to the Father, though he crush us. Because of the love that we have and desire to please him, we die and we live. There was a father, name was John Griffith. He had lost all in the stock market crash. He moved to Mississippi, where he took a job as a bridge operator for a railroad. In 1937, he was involved in a very horrible accident. One day, his eight-year-old son, Greg, spent the day with his dad at work. And the boy poked around the office and asked dozens of questions, just like little boys do. And the bridge was over a river and Whenever a ship came, John had to open the bridge and allow the ships to pass. The day that the boy was there with his father, a ship was coming, and so John opened up the drawbridge. And After a moment or two, he realized that his son wasn't in the office, and he looked around, and to his horror, John saw his son climbing around the gears of the drawbridge. He hurried himself outside to rescue his son, but just then he heard fast approaching a passenger train, the Mississippi Express, filled with 400 people. He yelled to his son, but the noise of the now clearing ship and the oncoming train made it impossible for the boy to hear him. And all of a sudden, John Griffith understood and realized his horrible dilemma. If he took the time to rescue his son, the train would crash killing all aboard. But if he closed the bridge, the boy would be crushed in the gears. He made the horrible decision, and he pulled the lever and closed the bridge, crushing his son. It is said as the train went by, John could see the faces of the passengers. Some were reading, some were even waving. All of them completely oblivious, to the sacrifice that had just been made for them. That's what Christ did for us. The only difference in that story would be this, that in the moment before the level was to be pulled, the father looked down upon the son, and the son looked up to the father. And before he was sentenced to be crushed in the gears to save the people, the father said, I love you. And the son, laying himself between the gears, said, I love you too, Father. That took strength. The strength of God rooted in love. That is the message of 1 Peter 2. That's his example to us. A few years ago, we heard a story from Pastor John, who played football, if you don't know. was almost going to go to the Cleveland Browns and decided to be a minister. Aren't we blessed instead? Um, And he had a football coach that had always ignored the gospel. He was 80 years old and was on his deathbed. He had his eyes closed. He hadn't opened them for three days. And when Pastor John came, he said, coach, it's Johnny. And the coach opened his eyes And Pastor John said, okay, this is your time, coach. You're the thief on the cross. It's time to come. Do you believe? Do you repent? And he shook his head. It's time for us to understand the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And the time is now to share with all those who are so now open-eared because of the world and how it is that there is one who came, and we can show who he is by living as he lived. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time given to this text. Lord, there's so much more that could be said, so much more depth, so much more incredible insights, but thank you for the amount that we have had and that it would be impressed upon us to think through these things together. Father, we have the world screaming at our doorstep, whether it be through media, whether it be through our workplace, whether it be through our families that do not and will not understand the Christ that is in us. We ask, especially as we draw even closer to the holiday season, toward Thanksgiving and Christmas, that we might model and be examples of the willingness to suffer, to not say the wrong thing, to only say the right thing, and to trust you for our greatest goal, as your text tells us, is that we might be an example to the world of the one who saves through his righteousness. Give us the desire to do that. Give us the humility and keep us from sin. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.